You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. J. Allen, Dr. J. Allen. on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Can you believe it? We are one week away from Christmas. Crazy, crazy, huh? Where did this year go? Busy year for me. Hopefully it was a busy and a quick year for you. Don't worry, as we wind down, we will still continue to have new episodes of Safety FM. As I told you a few weeks ago, something special for next week. So don't worry, we're going to have a Christmas edition that will actually come out. This week, the person I got to interview was a true pleasure. Before I tell you who it is, let me give you his biography. Over the course of a 35-year career in public safety, this person has worked as a chief ranger, a flight paramedic, a federal and state law enforcement officer, a firefighter, a ski patroller, a wilderness guide, an educator, and a pilot. The bulk of his career was spent leading emergency and search and rescue operations within the U.S. national parks. Now retired chief ranger, serves as a presenter, instructor, and consultant in human and organizational performance, safety differently. Operational learning and wilderness emergency medicine. He has provided training to companies and organizations involved in high hazard, high value work ranging from high voltage utility workers, mariners at sea, production floor employees, aviators, managers, supervisors, and even astronauts. Works regularly with the leaders in the field, including Dr. Todd Conklin and the hop coach, Bob Edwards. People with few exceptions take pride in their work and performing it reliably day after day. When something goes wrong, it seems so easy to blame, fix and retrain the worker. We go home feeling like the problem has been identified and solved. When we do this, we fix nothing in our systems and we have left our workforce in the same environment that made the mishap or tragedy possible in the first place. Asking the right questions about the traps and vulnerabilities in our system, working together to improve the condition and engaging the people who know the work is a bit harder to do initially, but the payoff is immense. Subject matter engages workers, managers with dramatic stories from his world of high hazard work. Participants come away with a new appreciation for the complexities their workers face every day but more importantly, they come away with new vocabulary and fresh insight relevant to making their own world safer, more productive, and so much better. Today, I have the honor to interview Mark Yeston. You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM.
So let me tell you, I, I, I figured I'm not going to torture you and go through. Let's let me sit here and introduce you. And I mean, we all know who you are. So I think that's relatively easy. What I wanted to do was just really to sit here and have a conversation with you. And I know that we can talk about the five principles or the six principles, but I really want to know what's new, what's coming up, what's going on with you. That's that's really what I'm curious about. I mean, I can I can I can talk about the five principles all day long, but everybody's heard that. So it's just one of those things that I want to know what's going on, what's changing, what's coming up. Yeah. And maybe, and I think it might be instructive for people um, who are interested in this kind of stuff to hear, you know, I, and I listened to your, your, um, your podcast and they're great, by the way, nice oh, job. Oh, and I, and I listened to um, several of them and I listened to Bob's and I thought one of the really interesting thing about Bob's was how he came to this. And that great story about, you know, working in a factory and, He's ready to send a guy home for messing something up. And then Todd says, no, I mean, it was very real time. That was kind of interesting. And the way I came into this kind of stuff was from doing, you know, not as a safety professional, but from doing high risk work. And I, I like, I actually like to call it high hazard work um, and, and managing the people to do that kind of stuff for, you know, for 35 years, different, different approach maybe, or different, different trail to the same, leads to the same place. So let's just have that conversation there. How did you start this? Go through that. How did you hear about this great human performance thing and how did it change you? And why did you decide to go down this path? Well, it was, uh, I, I really didn't do it intentionally. And, uh, you know, up front, you know, I, I was not trained as or educated as a safety professional or industrial hygienist per se. Those weren't the settings that I was working in. So from, from the day after uh, I got my initial EMT and later paramedic when I was a teenager, I um, was right out there working in what I would call high hazard environments. And then I spent the next 35 years doing those kinds of things in a variety of different environments. And then, of course, finally supervising and then later managing the people who were out there going and doing that stuff. And so I had a really major keen interest as anybody in I guess any line of work has of making sure that everybody gets home safe and making sure that, you know, I myself don't get hurt. And then over the years, over the many years of doing that, I was uh, working in all kinds of different settings where we were um, either beneficiaries or subjects of various safety programs that were going on at the time. And uh, some of them were relevant and useful. And some of them were frankly, you know, silly and cumbersome. And uh, I've had, uh, long-standing relationship with Todd Conklin just through friends and family that goes back many years and I was always kind of interested in what he was doing back when he was at Los Alamos National Laboratory um, the work that I was doing you know heavy in aviation heavy in fire heavy in you know wilderness rescue and things like that where you really just can't get it wrong and the consequences of getting it wrong are just tremendous you know when you, when you are 911 you can't really call 911 if things go wrong. So you've got to get things right. And so years ago, without any intention of, of uh, getting into this in any meaningful way, I just uh, would contact Todd and other people who worked in places where they also couldn't get it wrong. Like if Los Alamos National Laboratory gets it wrong, they kind of blow up northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. So it's really good that they don't do that. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it was interesting because I never really thought that the work and the teams that I worked with really had any parallels of what was going on in the larger world of you know, industrial safety and work practice safety. Um, but I came to realize over the many years that really it's not about, 
individual uh, settings. It's about people, workers. It's about supervisory and management structures. And whether it's a, a factory or an oil patch job or a ship at sea, what it really comes down to is people, the workers, trying to get the work done with the tools and the procedures that they're given and with their knowledge and expectations in their back pocket and hopefully in the front of their minds. And so you can substitute the word, you know, plumbing tool, hammer, ladder, fork truck with helicopter, rope, you know, rabid fox, and you're still talking essentially about the same thing. People interacting with different hazards, having to manage that risk and then get home safely and then hopefully improve and learn along the way. That's kind of how I came to this. But let's be realistic. The hazards that you get to see are life-changing events. I mean, as you said earlier, if something goes wrong, it's catastrophic failure for the most part. It's not as easy as I hit myself with a hammer. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think that, you know, I, I mean, the, the essence of that business is that you are basically going from zero to 100 miles an hour, never knowing when the call is going to come in. But when people... I think by definition, I always try to train, you know, paramedic and rescue people in this in this premise that um, you're not called until someone else has lost control of their situation and or is unable to to take care of it. And so by definition, you're pretty much called into some level of chaos and a lot of it's pretty simple to solve. But you're called in because everybody else there on the ground has uh, realized that the situation has evolved beyond their control and they need to reach to the outside world. And it's very interesting too, because uh, in the emergency services professions, and I think there's a lot of stuff that industry can learn from emergency services and first response, pretty much every, you know, the, 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 we say that there's no such thing as a routine call. And, I, and that's really kind of an ethic that people who are successful in this work carry with them for years and years and years, that no matter what you're called to, you're probably going to benefit from the experience you had from previous calls, but every single one is completely unique. And you're often operating under a, a serious time constraint, like let's get there in three minutes or let's fly there in 15 minutes or something like that. And uh, you don't necessarily have a whole bunch of time or information to act upon to kind of pre-plan what you're going to do. So, so when I started to learn about these notions and ideas of capacity and the ability to fail safely, I realized, well, that's just kind of what we do all the time because we're constantly going into unknown situations. Our, our orientation is not, well, if this goes wrong, the orientation is always when this goes wrong because every to a person, anybody who does this kind of work for years has, has lost, you know, colleagues and has seen horrible things happen to people who are out there trying to do good things. And so it's not theoretical to say like you know this could possibly happen you just sort of go into things assuming that bad things are going to happen and that puts you in a mindset that when, when you're working in an environment where it's very difficult to predict and prevent what might go wrong the only thing that will save you is having capacities in the system and in your procedures so that when things go wrong you can fail with some elegance and hopefully limit the harm I mean, at that particular point, you have to look at it that you're essentially the last line of defense. If you have a failure, as we discussed, it's a catastrophic failure and you get to see it live and in living color right there as it happens. So I so moving forward with this, I'm I would assume that my audience at this point already knows the five principles. I would imagine your followers and people that listen to your instructions are already aware of the five principles, but I'll run through them real quick. Error is normal. Blame fixes nothing. System drives behavior learning is vital response matters now i was at a training session that you were at and you were teaching and there was a reference to the six one 
controls save lives. So as so as this starts coming up, what other changes are we seeing inside of safety too? Well, I think that, you know, for a long time, and I've been subject to, to many of these kinds of safety programs where the idea is that if we can just get workers to care more, everything is going to be fine. And when you have that mindset, then anytime you have a failure, what you go and look for is at which point did the worker not care enough? And I remember, and this is going back you know, 20 or more years, um, sitting through a session where you know all of the employees that I was responsible for were brought in and there was a consultant there who was talking about this importance and value of you know caring and really just trying to get people to care about what they did. And, and uh, I was looking around the room at the people that uh, I worked with that were sitting there and I could see you know Robert who had, was fresh back from a, a army reserve deployment in Afghanistan and I saw you know Nancy who had uh, come out of bed at two o'clock in the morning to do CPR on someone's child and uh, you know on and on and I just thought I don't really know that I could make these people care more in fact it, sometimes my worry is that they care too much they won't even take a day off if they think somebody needs them so so caring is important and I would never want to work someplace where people don't care about what they do and care about the, the ways they interact with each other and, and the public but I don't think it's the the end all be all and so I know because I've seen it time and time again I can tell you as a as a responder you know every call you go to whether you're taking somebody off the factory floor or you know a hiker in distress or something like that you're seeing somebody who began the day and probably didn't say like I'm going to go out there and hurt myself and cause harm as best as I possibly can they probably didn't want to get hurt. They probably didn't want to have a failure. It's, it's not an intentional act. When we have people out there causing failures by intentional act, that's a different podcast. That's a criminal justice podcast. We have a whole system to deal with to deal with criminals. You know, We're talking about people who didn't intend for things to go wrong. And because the things that go wrong are sometimes so difficult to predict and to prepare for, that even despite our best efforts, things do go wrong. Ask any paramedic and they will say, there's a lot of randomness in the world and things do go wrong. And because those things are difficult to predict and forecast, really the only thing you have is these conversations and these actions around capacity, shifting from if this happens to when this happens and then thinking when this bad thing happens, what's going to keep us safe? You know, so flying around in helicopters, when we'd ask ourselves, what's the worst thing that could happen? We said, well, we have an unexpected mechanical malfunction and we fall out of the sky in a fireball. That's that's the worst thing that can happen. Well, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about that when it's happening. And so that's why it's a relatively rare event and so much work goes into preventing it. And, you know, great maintenance and great communication and good pilots and crew coordination and all that stuff. But when it does go wrong, what are you left with? And, you know, I work with a lot of you know helicopter aviation people that do emergency services and rescue, and and and, and it's interesting. Early on in the conversation, they're often like, "Yeah, you know, we know we show up every day knowing this can go wrong and the outcome is not good." But if you only focus on the worst thing that can happen, then you often don't pay attention to other things that are really really important, such as you know maybe a semi-catastrophic failure where the aircraft you know has a hard landing, crashes to the ground, maybe there are injuries or fire or something like that. Have you taken the opportunity to work with the ground crews and the fire departments and stuff that you normally, you know, uh, fly to to assist so that they know how to rescue you when things go wrong? That's that's an example of capacity. And then, of course, you know, strict adherence to PPE and briefing. But I think most importantly, one of the best capacities that we don't really talk about enough is the is the idea of understanding successful work. 
every, as I said, none of these, none of these calls or instances are routine. No work is routine. And when we go out there and actually do it and do it successfully, which we almost always do, we're, we're learning a lot. And if we're not capturing that learning and, and if we don't have a culture of communication that allows us to communicate what went well, what, you know, what was a near miss, what will we do better next time, then we just never advance. We never get better. I think a lot of that happens. I think in, in almost all of these things, we're much, much safer than we were 50, certainly 100 years ago, probably even 10 or 15 years ago. But the, I think we're at a point where our systems are pretty darn safe. The people who work in them are quite good in most cases. And so we get surprised when something big and horrible happens because our attention isn't there. Our attention, when we have low frequency events, is to count and measure the things that we can easily count and measure. So when I have a ranger who you know has 6,000 feet of rope out, or n numerous rangers doing a huge cliff rescue on a 3,000 foot cliff, 6,000 feet because you need two ropes, um, and they pull it off with just you know perfect uh, execution and save a life, but then somebody gets poison ivy because when you have 6,000 feet of rope out, someone's going to get poison ivy perhaps, and then maybe somebody you know got a bee sting or something like that. And, and those workers see their supervisors and overhead having to, you know, convene meetings to come up with protocols for bee sting prevention and sprained ankle prevention. And that sucks up the oxygen of the thought that should go into a robust safety program. Then we end up being surprised by a huge event because we had our faces and hands down in the weeds looking at these little tiny minor things that, that really don't kill people. So where do you think that an organization that's implementing HOP can start focusing to kind of make everything even keel? Because I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes we put such huge emphasis in some of these smaller, minor things opposed to these large detail. And then sometimes you run into organizations where they're focusing so much on these large scale events that they kind of forget about the medium to low grade. So how, where do you think the happy medium is? I think the magic word is curiosity. And curious, you know, every manager, every supervisor, every organization, we ha we have limited time. We always wish that we had fewer emails, fewer meetings, more time to actually go out there and interface. And it can be really difficult to go out there and and have face to face conversations and observe routine work. If you're only flying out of your office when something goes wrong, to you know investigate or to you know, hopefully learn from the event, then you're not going to get good information. Because when you only show up when things have gone wrong or nearly gone wrong, you just don't have credibility. When you show up or you or you order your supervisors to go out there and observe and interact in normal work, then you have the right to show up when things go wrong. And 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 that curiosity that that should drive you to go out and get that information is has many benefits. One, you understand what's going on. You understand the difference between the way you envision the work that you're sending people out to do versus how work is actually done. And there's always some sort of a gap there. And it's tremendously interesting to learn how our plans are implemented when people actually go out and do it. And the second giant benefit is that it starts to set up the mindset with employees that you're interested, that you want to know what they face. You want to know what their pinch points are, what what parts of our imagined procedures, even if they're longstanding, are no longer serving them. What have they had to adapt to over time? And then your response to that by saying like, wow, I didn't know we were doing it this way, or let me go back and think of how we can fix this and let's work together on it. What that does is just opens the door to transparency and communication. And you're gonna start hearing a lot more about what's actually going on out there. 
You're probably going to do things that you'll never be able to realize save lives and, cre- and, and reduce injuries because those incidents won't happen. And as a benefit, you're going to have happier people on all fronts. They're going to be more productive. They're going to feel more respected and uh, they're going to feel more a part of the enterprise, whatever that enterprise is. So I would say, kind of getting back to your question, the most important, if I just had to put it to one word, is curiosity. I think we all have an earnestness in not wanting people that maybe we don't even know who work in the worksite to not get hurt. That, that would be, you know, psychopathic. Um, but we're often just not curious enough to go out there and truly understand what's going on in the work field. Well, and I think that sometimes you run into people that are transforming from safety one to safety two, that they're curious, want to be earnest when it comes to certain things, but they're also afraid on what some of those changes might be, and they don't want to make a fool of themselves. No, sorry. No, I see that a lot when I'm out there. I see people who they know that, um, and, and, and by the way, let's just say, if Picture a workplace 100 years ago. You know, workers were pretty much expendable. It was a cost of doing business. There was no regulation or anything like that. Uh, we made tremendous uh, advancements in, in safety and productivity by, you know, respecting and making things safer by having rules and procedures, by asking and assuring that people cared about what they were doing and, and communicated about what they were doing. That got us a long, long way. I mean, I would absolutely go into any workplace pretty much anywhere in the first world today and be able to compare it to 50 or 100 years ago and it would be just infinitely safer so we've we've done a lot so i think sometimes when i go out with people they think like do we have to discard every good thing that we've done in the past that got us to this point and i think the answer has to be absolutely not what you're doing when you get to a point where you've gotten as good as you can be and you just need to get better is to just look at things a little bit differently. And the and the friction points there are when you've been doing something a certain way for a number of years, arguably with good success. And I often go to places where they've been doing things great for a year and then they have some horrible event that they never saw coming. And they're you know honestly sitting back going, how did we not see this? And things can sometimes be difficult to see. But the, the like I said, the pinch points, the friction that people sometimes have is that they look at the things that they've done. So and it's really common to, to go to a place where they, they really much, they have like prescribed discipline and how does prescribed discipline happen? Something bad goes wrong at some point in the organization's trajectory and they take some action with or for or against that employee. And it kind of becomes a precedent. And then in the human resources world, if that same or similar event, and I would just say that there's never a same event happens like 18 months later, the reference point is, well, what did we do the last time? And they say, well, you know, Joe got sent home for three days. He was really sorry about what he did. He admitted that he made a mistake and uh, we love the guy. And now he's back and everything's been fantastic. They're like, well, now Sandy's done a similar thing. So to be fair, we need to send her home for three days as well. And that's crazy because, you know, I was having a conversation as I was riding around with uh, a supervisor who does some interesting work out in the field and 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 he was saying yeah you know we we have these things that happen every couple years and to be fair and to be just i need to punish the same way i've always punished or retrain the way i've always retrained and we kind of had a conversation i said and they had a really strict policy like you even ding or dent or you know mark one of their company vehicles it's an automatic like five hour you know cut and pay or something like that and so 
what happened was is every time somebody dinged, they would have an incentive to maybe not tell anybody about it. And, you know, when you're out there using trucks and stuff, they do get dinged. And when we got to the point, I said, so what if, you know, certainly if one guy comes in and he's like still hung over from the night before and he wrecks one of your cars or dings a bumper, yeah, it's probably appropriate to pull out some punishment. But what if the next worker was actually using your company car to push, you know, I don't know, Mother Teresa across the railroad tracks and saves her life? You know, would that be the same kind of punishment? And we get into these positions where we put ourselves in a place where we just can't think or we, we do think, but we can't implement based on, you know, where our hearts and minds actually take us to be fair to people. And so this idea, so I, I'm all about fairness, but I think fairness sometimes just goes back into what did we do last time and not having any appreciation for the particular nuances of this situation. We just have to met out the same treatment. I mean, I think right now companies are so afraid of being sued if they don't follow the same actions that were done previously. And they always have a legal department that's tied in. And what was the actions that were done before that I can understand that from a corporate perspective, being inside of an organization. But if I was being the worker, I would have a hard time understanding that, especially if you're going from safety one to safety two and then trying to implement new programs because you can't use the same, I guess, discipline that you used in the previous life. Um, going forward, especially if you're trying to change the environment, culture, and so on. And I think that is a great example of what you're using on when you're using the, the Mother Teresa portion about pushing her out of the way, because then what happens? What is the punishment then? How are you holding the person accountable? Right. If you're not curious and you don't want to look and, you, and you're not motivated enough or you're inhibited from actually understanding, be, being able to go out there and get the story and tell the story. I mean, we have a criminal justice system, you know, as, as, it's as imperfect as it is, but I think for the most part, it's pretty darn perfect. And I've testified in federal courts and things like that. It's a pretty interesting thing. And, uh, but in, in companies and organizations, we think we're doing kind of the same thing, you know, the rights to present evidence and to talk about things in a really formal way, but we're really not. And I don't think we necessarily should be, but we have to have our minds open to being curious and to looking at each instance as a unique thing, because it is a unique thing. Like I said, no such thing as a routine call. There's no such thing as a routine incident. And that's why I think learning teams play such a big factor into implementing this new version of safety and really taking those deep dives inside of the learning team, but also limiting the amount of time that you're allowing people to actually be inside of the learning teams before they regroup. What is your experience with some of those learning teams? Well, it's interesting. Um, the term learning teams, I, I wish it had a different term, you know, and, and I've done stuff like that my entire career, but we had much more macho names for them, like <laughs> after action reviews and things like that, you know, tactical learning objectives, facilitated learning events, FLEs, whatever you want to call them. But, you know, because learning team sounds like, okay, we're going to get some cookies and have some juice. Maybe we can get it to start trending on Twitter or something. Come up with something clever. We'll, we'll go ahead and try to tweet it out or something. Big hairy learning event. I have no idea. But, you know, but, but, but the thing is, or, or maybe learning cocktail hour, that could be interesting too. But, but, but the thing is, whatever, whatever we call it, you know, and when you see people who have spent their entire careers, you know, going from one program to the next or morphing through different programs, um, I think right off the bat, when this concept of learning teams is, is exposed to them, I think, well, you know, where, where, where are the five principles? Where's the pyramid? Where are the two rotating circles and in the interconnected, you know, flow chart that tells me exactly how to do this? 
And once you actually start doing it with them and you realize this is this is a conversation, this is a, a conversation where we're going to come together and we're going to uh, agree on the front end to inhibit ourselves from immediately jumping to conclusions and immediately jumping to fixes, because that's what we're all inclined to do. When we've got pain, we want to fix it, make it go away. And I think the beautiful thing about the learning team approach is that it it uh, it forces you and it's not too difficult to do to remain curious, to remain inquisitive, to restrain yourself from going into fixing mode, knowing that fixing mode is coming. And rather than prematurely coming up with easy fixes, you end up with a much more nuanced story, i.e. Mother Teresa across the railroad tracks. And you can you see the things that you might not otherwise have seen. And you end up in a place where the corrective actions that you might have taken as a knee jerk are really kind of spurious and, and, the, and the corrective actions that you do come up with are much more durable. And then the giant benefit to it is that the workers and the people involved s smell that curiosity. And then when they see that you're actually curious about what they face and what's going on and you want to learn and you want to help, then they have the opportunity to see how you implement and how you fix things or assist them in fixing things and making things better on the back end. And that's where the real that's where you hit the real gold here, because when employees realize that they're going to be treated fairly and that people are actually interested in what's going on, and then they see management or the organization take an action that makes their life safer, better, more productive, things they can be better proud of when they come home at the end of the day, that creates a nice feedback loop. And people are less inhibited then to be forthcoming and share about the actual experiences they're having. They will come to you and say, hey, I know you're interested in this stuff now, so I'm going to tell you this thing that we do every Wednesday that just doesn't make any sense. And it's just fascinating to watch. And I would say that to a team, to an event, going into it, you can't help but have some preconceived notions about how it's all going to turn out. But I would say overwhelmingly, the majority of the time, uh, you come away from that realizing like, wow, I, I really have a grasp that I didn't have before. The people in the room have a clear understanding of what's going on out there. And we can actually do some meaningful things to make it better and safer and maybe even save some money along the way. Well, I think a lot of times when they're doing the initial transition from safety one to safety two, and you do that first initial learning team, it's that culture shock and change. And it's amongst management. It's amongst the actual team players or team members that are there in regards of how honest can I be and how am I going to be held accountable if I say something that's considered off kilter at the time. So it's those original conversations that I think really play a huge factor going forward on when people have them. Now, have you been involved in those first communications on when people are going from safety one to safety two? Yeah. And, and I, I haven't really... There's not a lot of places that are explicitly saying like safety one is bad, safety two is good, this is what we're gonna do. There are places that have gotten great benefit out of what they were doing under what we'll call safety one for the purposes of this discussion, but they wanna do something else and more. And and yeah, I've been in those in those several times. And what I noticed that is that early on in the process, like the first time people go through a, a learning event of some sort, uh, that are in that where they're really testing the waters, the most important conversations take place you know, in little pods during the breaks. And you can sense and see that people are in that formal setting, and even though we try to keep it relaxed, in that formal setting, you know, and then what they're really talking about, the real issues are, is what's happening in the hallway. And when you identify that and you say like, this is what we're interested in, let's bring this back into the room, uh, people start to share. 
people start to, and I think it depends. I mean, I've, I've gone to places where, you know, everybody's got terrible stories of you know, unfairness and what they perceive as mistreatment. And they're very, very skeptical about, you know, I mean, any good attorney will tell you if somebody's looking at you for information, give as little information as possible because you might be held to account for anything you say wrong. And so we kind of start from a place where people are, there's an incentive, at least a psychological incentive to not disclose too much information. And so even if the first one is a little, you need to get out into the hallways and say, no, 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 we really want to hear this stuff. That's where the management really has that opportunity following that learning event to come out and say, this is what we learned. This is what surprised us. And this is what we're going to do about it. Maybe we can't fix every single thing that was identified because we go broke and crazy, but we're going to take some meaningful actions on the things that we can. And I guarantee you that next meeting and as word spreads around, you know, as they get back to their machine or their work site and they say, how was that thing you had to go to at the safety office? And they say, actually, it was kind of interesting, but we'll watch and see. And then a couple of weeks later, when they watch and see and see some kind of positive result from it, they start talking to each other. And even the people who weren't in the learning teams understand that when something happens to them, maybe they're going to have an opportunity to be heard. Maybe they're going to have an opportunity to be understood. That's powerful. Oh, absolutely. And let me kind of backtrack real quick, because I know that sometimes when I jump around and I say safety one and safety two, people sit here and think that I'm bashing behavior-based safety. Behavior-based safety got us so far down the path, but I just think that it got to the point where it needed to evolve. And I think that that's the journey that we're on now. And it's funny because I do so much research in regards of how far along we are in HOP and just having doing the research and looking at different and having different conversations. It's crazy to hear on how long it's been around but how it was kept away for such a long period of time at the same time too. So when you start hearing about hop for the first time, and I'll kind of go very far back there, what did you think? Did you think that it was a philosophy? Did you look at it as this is some theory that somebody has, that's not going to work or did you really believe in it wholeheartedly when you first heard about it? You know, in, in my experience with organizations that are good at keeping their employees safe and well and knock on wood, I never had a fatality or serious injury over 35 years with the people that I was responsible for getting home safe. Had some close calls and stuff like that. Um, all of the things that we did, and certainly not things that I invented, but all the things that we did and, and, and the organizations that I came into that had kind of a nasty or bad culture um, were based on this notion of you know curiosity, event learning, and, a, and, a, and an ultimate respect for the people that were doing the work and the organization and how they could work better together. I never knew that was gonna get called hot and I certainly didn't invent it, but I've lived it. So let me ask, so being there, that you were there and you got to see firsthand things that are going on, how do you go going, how do you enjoy right now going being that last line of defense to now being somebody who's kind of helping people getting into the infancy stages of them really starting to understand it from the beginning? Are you enjoying that process so far? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think it's it's hard not to have this these concepts make sense to people because you really already apply it in many other important areas of your life. I mean, in the final analysis, what a lot of this does is it gives us better intelligence, it gives us better knowledge and information about how the world, the work world in this case, actually works. Well, I can't think of a person out there a responsible adult who before they have to make some sort of serious decision that's going to have consequences 
that they don't recognize the, the, the necessity of having as much relevant information as they possibly can. Do you just pick the first mortgage broker or the first insurance company or the first mechanic? No, you dig in and you get some information because you're naturally curious because that curiosity is probably going to give you information that's going to serve you. And organizations that aren't curious and don't want to look at that stuff end up not having that information. Organizations that automatically punish or whose answer to everything is like, well, even though Joe's a good employee, on this particular day, he became temporarily incompetent, didn't care enough. We're going to give him a pass this time and send him to you know a little bit of retraining and stuff like that and ask him to really pay attention and care more. Well, that's kind of nutty because if we really want to make those things better, just like in those other examples I just gave – Information is, is your power. And the only place you get this information is from observing and from communicating. And I've been in several, like, I'll, I'll take you back to, to Grand Canyon for a while. We, we had a, uh, you know, kind of a safety walk around program. And, um, and we had very, very um, safe and good operations. But all of a sudden, now there were these, like, commercially produced cards that were clearly useful and probably had a really good history in industrial environments. But... You know, we had to pull these cards out. Supervisors had to turn in 10 of them a week. We had to go out there and observe work, which was great. And, uh, but you go out and the cards were completely irrelevant. Like, you know, did the employee perform, you know, lockout, tagout verification? Well, you can't lockout, tagout the Colorado River. You can't lockout, tagout a grizzly bear or a rattlesnake. <laughs> and those are the kinds of things that, you know, they're just not there. I mean, well, you know, frankly, you can lockout, tagout a bear, but you're not supposed to in a national park. But, um, you know, it was a very once facing thing and employees even it was it took supervisors who had who had previously had great face to face communication skills with their employees and kind of added this layer in. And I could see the employees sort of like, well, all of a sudden this relationship has changed and now they're observing me. And I know that that was never the intention of the people who came up with that program. And so what I did is when I got pushed back from the employees, I said, you know, this this particular card, I could see how this would be great in a factory, but it doesn't really work in a you know, an alpine environment or a, you know, an eroding canyon feature like the Grand Canyon. Um, maybe we'll tweak it and make it more relevant. So they were actually had supervisory buy-in and employee buy-in, and they all got together and they said, what are the things that you want us to pay attention to? What should, uh, what do you think we're missing? And they came up with these, these cards that were really interesting, some stuff about work rest and about environmental hazards, like, you know, super heat and stuff like that, lightning. And, and uh, and I was really proud because they produced their own cards that were relevant to their situation and they went out and used them and they turned them in. And then when I in turn turned the big pile in at the end of the month so that it could be entered into somebody's database somewhere, uh, I was called on the carpet and they said, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is copyrighted material. This is trademark. You can't modify this or change this. And so they said, go back and fill these things out. And of course, people will meet the metric. And so when I had to tell them, don't use these cards that you invented anymore, uh, use the ones that were given to us. And by the way, you have to turn in five of them per pay period. I guarantee they met the metric, but I kind of suspect that, you know, when, in looking at the forms as they came in, that somewhere they had like a, a big pile of different colored pens and they would crinkle the paper up in a different way, like the day before it was due. And they would just like check boxes and fill things up to meet the metric. And that didn't get us anywhere. That that's awful stuff. And I was really happy when it went away. I think that that's a, co a common practice in a lot of organizations in regards that have paperwork that's due as part of the incentive program. Talking about that for a moment, you, I'm sure you've heard as of late people are trying to do what we'll call behavior-based safety and hoplite in a combination. 
What are your thoughts behind people that are trying to do this? Because they have to have a, a concept or have to have a program, something that they can grab, hold, touch. What's your thoughts? Well, I think, I think, uh, I think anybody who is um, trying to sell a product out there and there, and there are many and some are good and some are not so good. You know, there's an incentive. If you're trying to sell something, you need to say like, our thing is the unique one and our thing is the best one and it's trademarked and here's the name. And I think that if we had some big corporate movement behind, you know, hop, everything would be trademarked. Everything would be, you know, use our system. Don't use anybody else's system. But that's not what it is, because I think everybody who's kind of involved in the um, in the basement level of this stuff feels like this is just information. And you can use this information or this way of thinking and plug it into whatever system you're using and then see if it's helping you get better. And if it is helping you get better, maybe you want to you know, do some more stuff more rigorously along these lines. If it's not working for you, then maybe you maybe your your program hasn't evolved to the point where this you know, kind of thing works. Maybe you really do have people coming in who intentionally want to destroy your systems and hurt each other, but I hope not. But uh, I think if, if, if there were smart business people behind this, this would all be, you know, trademarked, copyrighted, protected and stuff like that. But I think the people behind this are people, you know, coming from different disciplines, you know, from academia and from, you know, the trenches and people who put their boots on every day who are saying this is kind of stuff that we knew all along and we've lived through systems where whether they knew it or not, they were actually doing things that encouraged, you know, curiosity, communication and improvement. And they saw the benefits of that. So I don't think anybody should own it. Well, I think it's funny that you say that because there are people that are trying to make money off of this. And what I mean by that is their resources are free or they'll give you some information and then you can come to their website and you can see, let's say a video or two. But then you have to go behind a paywall to be able to see the rest of the information. And I think it's interesting because they're taking other people's information and changing it up just a tad or even having videos of pretty well-known people and then implementing those videos behind their paywall. And I'm just like, how can you sleep at night if you're doing things like that? Well, that's capitalism in action, I guess. And I get, I guess, I mean, listen, if good information gets out and, it, and, and, and somebody wants to go through PayPal or something like that to get that information, then no problem. But I, I, I do think that, you know, if, if we were saying that the people in my world were saying things completely differently and it was gaining some traction, there would certainly be people out there who would want to gang on to that. I think that's just, you know, that's the hazard that, you know, quote unquote, we impose on ourselves by not being proprietary about all of this stuff. It's, it's stuff that everybody kind of knows and they just need to to see a path toward using it and then they can confirm what they know absolutely they just need to refine it Talk, talking to people talking to people and understanding what's going on is 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 important in, in any endeavor so if we facilitate that and, and don't shut it down people get better and if they use it as a percentage of their program great if they go full on like many organizations have um even greater so talking about organizations that want to go full on if people are interested in actually having you come out to their organization and help them out what do they need to do to be able to contact you oh i'm pretty easy to reach um i have a, a, a very simple website um it's just uh m yeston Dot com. Yeah, that's it. com, And there's contact information in there and stuff like that. So I, I travel around. I give, I give keynotes. I give, 
you know, I, I work with organizations that are, you know, all along this path, whether they're starting or they're full into it and, and uh, just trying to tune things up. So, you know, keynotes or fundamentals training, I think it's, it's really essential that the, the overhead knows what this is about, because if there's no if there's no buy in from the from the management and the upper management, then, then this kind of nothing really goes anywhere in an organization unless there's buy in and commitment up top. But really, I love working at the you know, manager, supervisor and worker level. And uh, and I find that it's it's nice with with workers. You know, when you first show up on a work site, you're observing work and things like that, and they think like, oh my gosh, this guy's here to measure my shoelaces and stuff. And then you actually start having these conversations about like you wouldn't, I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the fact that your organization is curious about how work is done here and how to make things better and safer and more productive for all of us. And then after a while, the the guard comes down, and you start to learn a lot. And then and then when they start to share that information with their management, and then we do some you know fundamentals training on just based you know what this these ideas are about to people at those different levels of the organization. They come away with kind of a vocabulary. Like I think one of the best ones is that black line, blue line concept. And you, know, you can characterize it many ways, but certainly in any endeavor, there's a difference between what we envision is going to happen and what actually happens and what we envision people are going to do and what they actually do. Everybody gets that. And when, when they know that there's a curiosity there, they start to adopt that vocabulary. Say, so, well, you know, the, I mean, the new organizations that you know, took that concept and they've turned it into to, uh, something they call the blue line review because they want to look at, you know, successful work. And, you know, why did it work and why is this? Is, is this is this getting better all the time? And that's fantastic. So when they come away with, you know, a, a common set of vocabulary and uh, and they start to trust each other throughout the various levels of the organization that that there's a willingness to to be open and to hear these things and not just be kind of robotic in our responses to stuff that we want to hear bad things we want to hear good things that's fantastic so did i answer your question absolutely no you, you answered my question and gave gave more information and that's that's good because you want to be people need to hear exactly these different things and they're going to need to hear you know what exactly you do when you actually go out to an organization well, Mark, I do appreciate you actually coming on to the show today. Jay, it was really nice talking to you. I just want everybody to know that, you know, your best employee, your newest employee make mistakes. And so do we. So do you. And uh, blaming without seeking to understand what's going on fixes nothing. And the systems that we have people in certainly influence them. Knowing how our operations are actually conducted, it takes curiosity. It takes communication. It takes some honesty. And that people really pay attention to how management responds. So I think that maybe as a rehash of the principles there, but it's just true. And nobody owns the principles. So if you heard it here for the first time, write them down, stick them in your wallet, go out there and use them and you'll see. Mark, I agree with you 100%. Thanks again. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. SafetyFM.com.